0: Sweet rivers of redeeming love, lies just before my eyes, had I the pinions of a dove, I to those rivers of... Call your attention to the third chapter of 2 Peter. We'll start at the first verse. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Brethren, I hope it is no surprise to you that we are living in the last times. We have been living in the last times. Since the days of the apostles. Okay, Paul says in the Hebrew letter that God in sundry times and diverse manners spoke to the children of Israel by the prophets. Now, in these last times, has spoken was by his son. This is not some major apocalyptic proclamation. We are now and have been living in the last times since the since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so do not be surprised that there are scoffers. You know any scoffers? You ever met one? Even worse, have you ever been one? Um, Brother Bray read the first psalm for us on Wednesday night. And in the first psalm, it says, Blessed is he that walketh not in the way of ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Brethren, I'm convinced that the seat of the scornful is a lazy boy. Because it's easy to fall into and hard to get out of. You know, before you know it, there you are. It's a really comfortable place to be. The natural man loves it. Because we love to puff ourselves up. We love to lift ourselves up. We love to think of ourselves more than we ought. We love the idea that we've got it all figured out. Brethren, I submit to you, you do not have it all figured out. You don't have it all figured out. Nobody has it all figured out. And we need to keep that in our minds. We need to remember that the world is bigger than we can wrap our heads around. God is bigger than we can wrap our heads around. Now, I've been thinking about the flood a lot recently, and I'm not going to talk about that today, to not to right now. Lord willing, we'll be talking about the flood uh, this evening at uh, Wilmington. Shameless plug, we'll be holding services light supper starting at 4.30 and a service starting at 5.30. We'll start talking about the flood narrative. But what I want to focus in right now this morning is this idea that they were willingly ignorant. These scoffers were willingly ignorant Ignorant. What does that mean? See, ignorant means you don't know something. Well, we're all ignorant about puns on the subject. I'm sure there are things I know that very few people in this room know. I'm sure there are things that you all know that I don't have any idea about. Okay? There's a difference between being ignorant and we are all, well, there's no way we could know everything, and those that do really, you know, think that you are really in trouble, right? So, but there's a difference between being ignorant and being willingly ignorant. See, there was something these people should have known, did know, but refused to know. Okay? They were willingly ignorant. Now, we have to be careful. These things are written for our learning. On the one hand, it's to arm you so that you are not unduly affected by scoffers. People who think they've got it all figured out when in fact they are willingly ignorant. We see that in our world. Our world is so full of science, which is basically a Latin word that means knowledge. You know, it's funny, right? All you got to do is make it Latin. And now it just seems more sophisticated, which is actually Greek. Okay? So if, it's, if we can use a Greek word or a Latin word to describe it, then it's got to be more sophisticated, more knowledgeable, you know, higher, right? And science is filled, you know, the biology is filled with all these Latin words. You know, psychology's filled with all these Latin and Greek words. We use all these Latin and Greek words to describe things, right? And when you know Latin and Greek, I took some Latin classes. I don't claim to have any knowledge of Greek, much. it's Greek to me anyway. The point being, some of these things become silly. Because really, it's just Latin for what we would have called it. You know, in everyday common parlance, it's just Latin, so it sounds more academic, right? So on the one hand, you need to be armed against the scoffers so that you are not unduly affected by the scoffers. And realize that there's more to this world than man has figured out. You know, it's it's really, it's really amazing. emphasis, the trust people put in mathematics, okay? If the equations are right, it's got to be right, right? Well, mathematicians know better. There was a time when the Greeks believed that every number could be represented as a ratio of two whole numbers. Okay? They were really surprised when somebody pointed out that the square root of two is irrational. So think about it. When people tell you there has to be a rational explanation for everything, I submit to you the square root of two. See, there isn't a rational explanation for everything. There are irrational things. There are even imaginary. Have you ever heard of imaginary numbers? Have you heard of them? So pi is irrational, and i is imaginary. And it is mathematically proven that math is incomplete. There are truths that cannot be proven mathematically because math is incomplete. But you get scoffers that if they can't prove it mathematically it must uh, of necessity be true when math is incomplete so there's a whole class of things that cannot be proven although they're absolutely true. So What what am I going all about this? This is really not supposed to be math class. okay? But I want you to understand that there's more to this world than meets the eye. There is an invisible component in addition to the visible component. There is a natural component and there is a supernatural component. And Our natural physics can explain the natural world, but it cannot explain the spiritual world. You know, we we were all taught about our five senses, right? And there are actually more than those, but we'll just start with those. If If we confine our understanding of the cosmos to what we can experience through our senses, we are missing vast amounts of the cosmos. Because the universe is bigger than that. It's more mysterious than that. There are more things we do not know than things we do know. So, because of that, because... The world is bigger than we could possibly comprehend, in order to survive, in order to function, we've got to reduce it. We've got to model it. Every one of us has a model of the world in our mind. I believe the technical term is schema. That's a psychological term because it's a computer scientist. That means uh, what the tables mean and all the different stuff in a database. But anyway schema we all have that model that mental model of how the world works and because God is bigger than we can ever cram into our minds because God is is more boundless than we can fathom we all have a model of what God is like okay and we have to be careful because our schema is not reality. Our models are not reality. Our chief scientist today is fond of saying, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Okay? So what does that mean? That means you don't really understand the world. Your model of the world is incomplete. And you don't really understand God. Your model of God is incomplete. Paul talks about how when um, Moses came down from the mountain, his face showed. Remember that from, I believe it was in Exodus. And he, he, it scared the children of Israel. Confronted with this reality of God's holiness. God so holy that speaking to Moses made Moses' face shine. They were Fearful. And so Moses put a veil on his face because he scared them. And he put a veil on his face. And then when he went in before the Lord, he took the veil off. And then when he went out to tell them what the Lord had said, he put the veil back on because they were, he was so affected, so challenged, so changed by his encounter with God that he was scary. And Paul says, they read the law with that veil still over it. Imagine what that that really means there is that the glory of God is in the law. No wonder the psalmist says, blessed is a man that meditateth on the law day and night. Meditate on it. Think about that. So my wife and my son and I are, are doing the Bible in a year thing. And there's a guy who reads it. And he's talking about how people tend to get, you know, Genesis is easy. We get through Genesis, there's a few speed bumps over all the begatting going on and all the names we can't pronounce. I don't know about you, but if I can't pronounce a name, I can't remember it. But that's a different story for a different day. Not that I can remember names anyway, but that's a different issue. The point being that when we get to, in Exodus, we're going along in Exodus and then we get to the tabernacle and the lampstand. And the showbread, and we get to the ark, and then we start to, you know, our wheels start to get a little, uh, start to sink a little bit, you know, and then we get, and then we make it through the Exodus, we get into Leviticus, and we we spend, we spend chapters on leprosy, and we're like, oh, and that's about where as far as we get, and we stop, or maybe we skip through, right, and get back to Numbers and and Joshua you know, we get to Joshua, now we've got narrative again, and we've got the fall of Jericho, and and now now we're cruising. Meditating on the law? When you realize that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus is the goat for the atonement whose blood was taken into the holiest holies to make atonement for the people as his blood was taken into that of holies with, not made with hands and made atonement for us. Jesus is the red heifer who was taken out and suffered without the camp and the ashes of which sprinkled with, mixed with water made us clean his sacrifice has made us clean and we are now clean and we stand in his presence holy accepted in the beloved because we're washed we're washed in his righteousness we're washed in his love we're washed in his sacrifice and he is seated at the right hand of god making intercession for us back and read Exodus. Go back and read Leviticus. Look for Jesus. Meditate on that because there is the glory of God is in in the law. And the, 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 the crime if you will, the sadness is the Jews read that and the veil is still on it, and they can't see the glory because their schema, that veil, prevents them from seeing it. And the same thing can happen to us. Our worldview, our schema, our model, our model of the world, our model of God, can prevent us from seeing His glory. And... And when Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. Oh, think about that for a moment. Here is a man that was called up to the third heaven and saw things that were unlawful to be uttered. And he says, we see through a glass darkly. Here is a man who was struck down by the Lord, who encountered him on the road to Damascus and heard the Christ speak. Saul, Saul. It is a marvel that our names are written in heaven. We ought to marvel that our names are written in heaven. This man heard Jesus speak his name. And he says, "We see through a glass, darkly." You ever forget to take off your sunglasses? A good friend of mine from high school and I rode motorcycles out to Colorado in the fall, and um, I'm riding um, this Honda Shadow, and I knew the headlight was anemic. I knew it was a it was a weak headlight, especially compared to my Honda that's got two. Even my Yamaha's got a much stronger headlight than this this uh, Honda Shadow. And it's getting darker, and it's raining. It was rain. It was pouring down rain. And we get back on the highway, and I'm like, "This is ridiculous. This light doesn't. There's this light's not showing anything." And then finally, it dawns on me. I have a sun visor in my helmet. And I forgot to flip it up. And when I flipped it up, things got a lot brighter. You ever see through a glass darkly? That's what Paul's talking about. You know, you sometimes just can't see. And part that's our that's our schema, that's our worldview. And what am I trying to say? I want you to understand that our knowledge of the world, our knowledge of God, is incomplete. We've got to confess that and then strive to search out like the noble Bereans who heard with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see that these things are so. So number one, don't be afraid of scoffers. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. They still say that everything happens just the way it's always happened. That everything that's ever taken, that everything that we see can be explained through the processes we can still observe. And they're wrong, dead wrong. And Peter says they're dead wrong because they've forgotten all about the flood. Lord willing, we'll talk about this that this evening. But more importantly, you know, they still do it. They still say that. So don't worry about the scoffers. And, and you may or may not be able to educate them. Some of them are past, that they, they refuse. They know, they know these things, but they refuse to acknowledge them. We all have paradigms. And sometimes our paradigms get in the way of the truth. So the other thing we need to do is be open to the word of the Lord. Don't so, if we come to the Lord, come to the Scripture, trying to prove what we already believe, sometimes we can we can always do it because it's so vast. We can find, you know, especially if we take things out of context, right? We need to come to it and let it speak to us. I'll close with this: um, in in the life of David, it's actually very interesting how often we see David inquired of the Lord. Shall I do this? And every time David inquired of the Lord, shall I do this? He was successful and very successful. But there were several occasions where David forgot to do that. And every time he forgot to do that, Things did not go very well for David. We need to be in prayer. It's not enough to read, I, I read, devour the word, but it's not enough because we need to be. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal it to us, that we can rightly divide it. Um, when Joshua came into the land, those ambassadors came to him. Joshua did exactly what he should have done according to the book. The problem was, he was being deceived. And the scripture says he did not inquire of the Lord. When we think we know what to do and fail to inquire of the Lord, that's usually a precursor to trouble. So we need to always, not trust in our own understanding, but trust in him and inquire
1: of the Lord. May the Lord richly bless. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 18, it says this And they said, Let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for this good work. What does it take to rise up and build? It takes someone that has a vision. It takes uh, individuals. It takes a people that are strengthened of the Lord. It takes folks that realize there's an opportunity of the Lord. What is your mindset? When you look at a glass that is... 50% 50% full of milk, do you see it as half full or do you see it as half empty? When you face things in your life, are you the type individual that, that you can see how things can be done? Or are you of the mindset to always, it almost... Fits in with what Brother Chuck said about being the scoffer. Are you the type of person that always tells why things cannot be done? Here, the people said, let us rise up and build. And the people, it says, strengthened their hands for this good work. I don't think that by nature we see the positive side. I think our sinful nature just almost always takes us to the negative position of probably almost everything. How is it that if we're prone... Now, some folks may be a bit more prone to be positive. I think Sister Perry probably wrote... Uh, a very good uh, example of that in her life. But if you, it, it, maybe if you're like me, that it's just not maybe your nature and you have to work at it, what are some things that, that you can do to make sure that when you see an opportunity, you realize that it's an opportunity of the Lord and you want to be used of the Lord to fulfill that opportunity? One thing you do is you realize that, first of all, your strength is not in yourself, but it's in the Lord. If you're leaning on your own strength, you're going to get real discouraged. And and it won't take long to prove that if you're trying to go in your own strength. But another thing that is really helpful in doing this is looking at examples in the scriptures. You go back to numbers where... Uh, where there were 12 that went out to spy the land of Canaan. 10 of them came back and they said, the giants are too big. It's too uh, it's too much of an undertaking and we do not have the power to take the land. But Joshua and Caleb came back and they said, it is a good land. They all saw the same thing. Why is it that they perceived it differently right here? Joshua and Caleb came back and they said, it's a good land and God has given given us this land and we can take the land in the strength of the Lord. They all saw the same thing. But why is it two of them said we can take it and ten of them said we can't. So one thing that will help us Is if we go through the scriptures and we find examples in the scriptures like Joshua and Caleb, like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my heroes in the scripture. He is. Every time I read it, I get encouraged and strengthened and it helps readjust my focus. And if we look at some examples in the scriptures, then that's a great encouragement to us. But you can also look at examples in your own life. I mentioned Sister Perry over and over. I I remember asking her one day. We were on the way to church, and she was well over 100 years old at the time. And I said, Sister Perry, how is it that you are so positive and so upbeat in every situation all the time? It's not that everything has gone well for you. She had cancer. She lost a leg uh, to an amputation. She lost her son to uh, a, a drown. He drowned up here in the Susquehanna River. She had a lot of hardships in her life, but she didn't dwell on those hardships. And I said, how is it that you remain so positive, so upbeat all the time at past 100 years old? How do you do it? She said, I learned a long time ago that if I got my attitude right early in the morning, It made a big difference the rest of the day. Well, how is it that we get our attitude right early in the morning? You look at examples in God's word. That'll encourage you. It sure will. And then you look at examples that God has put in your life of people. Brother David, your grandmother's a great example. Ninety-four years old and going strong, serving the Lord. What a great encouragement. God has put individuals in our life to be examples for us that will be an encouragement to us. And we ought to pray that God would use us to be an example for others. When we finished our course, it'd be a great joy and delight if we knew that God had used us. Not to go around filled with complaint and bitterness and scoffing and mocking. But filled with strength in the Lord. So let's just look at a few verses here in Nehemiah, and and I'll I'll, I'll just briefly summarize. We're probably at 13 great chapters. You would do well to read all the chapters. You will be so blessed if you'll read all the chapters. Here are some things that we can do. We can follow the example of Nehemiah and the example that he set uh, when we are facing difficult times, facing tragedy, uh, facing situations in our life that that, that seem to be overwhelming, that seem like there's no way out we can look at the example of Nehemiah and be greatly encouraged by Nehemiah's example. Nehemiah received a report. It says one of my brethren came and I asked them, "Tell me about my people back home. Tell me about the folks of my homeland. How are they faring? How are they doing? The report that Nehemiah received was not an encouraging report. And he said unto me, they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity in the province are in great affliction and great reproach. He says, not only are the people afflicted, Not only are they in great reproach, but he says the walls of the city, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. And he says the gates thereof are burned with fire. And he says when Nehemiah heard these words, he says he sat down and he wept and he mourned certain days and he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. Can I tell you that in the day in which we're living, we should be we should be aware that we are in difficult times. Folks have landed in different degrees of the spectrum regarding COVID, the treatment, the cause, all the things like that. But almost every single church that I know of, it's had a negative impact upon it in some degree. Churches across the country are suffering as a result of it. No matter where you stand, no matter where you go to church, you're going to find that it's had some impact, and in many cases, it's been a negative impact. Do we just pitch in the towel? Do we just give up and say these, these are the times that we're in? Satan would delight for us to do that. He would delight for us to get so discouraged that we say it's not worth going to church. It's not worth serving the Lord. It looks like my friends and the folks that I work with are having a much better time. If you ever get to questioning that, run over and read Psalm 73, because it will help put your thinking back in the right spot. If you ever think that the ungodly is having a better time, they may be for a season, but that's not the last chapter. When Nehemiah heard the report in the country that we're living in it doesn't seem to me that it's the same country that I was born in i remember when 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 i was in the first grade i remember that we started off the class we started off with someone having a prayer over the loudspeaker that went through all the classrooms The the reciting of the Pledge of Allegiance. And oftentimes folks would actually read a scripture or some scriptures. A child would, would, from the principal's office, would read a scripture. And that's how we started our day. By the second or third grade, it became challenged. And then it was actually not allowed before I was out of elementary school. And it was a practice that we got away from. No matter where, whether folks took their children to church or not. I grew up in the South and most folks did go to some type of, of, of religious order. Went to church. But even if they didn't, they were exposed to many of the principles and the truths that are in God's word. At an early age at school and different places like that. Do we just give up and say, there's no hope of it ever being any better? Or do we pray that God might in some small way use each one of us in some fashion to make a difference? Nehemiah desired to be used of God to make a difference. Now, you wouldn't really think that Nehemiah would be in a position to make much of a difference. Well, what was Nehemiah's role? All that Nehemiah did was, was taste the drink before the king would drink it. I say that's not a very important job, but, but you know, if you're the king, it's a pretty important job because the purpose of it most of the time is that if Nehemiah drank something that somebody was trying to poison the king, then Nehemiah is the one that was supposedly going to kill over first before he got to the king. And so he was the king's cupbearer and would make sure that what the king would drink was pure before the king would actually drink it. But you wouldn't think somebody like that would be used to make a difference. You might be saying, well... I only have the role of of being an at home mother and and raising my children, and and how in the world could that make a difference? Abraham Lincoln was taken to church, and actually, it was a a primitive Baptist church, an old school Baptist church, and his uh, mother and father raised him going to church there. But he attributed later on in his life the success and the convictions that he had was very much attributed to the godly example of his godly mother. And yet her example had an impact upon our nation and even yet today in the lives of individuals, you may think, How could God use me? First of all, you need to be asking God. Galatians chapter 6 says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those that are of the household of faith. God's the one that gives us opportunities, He is. And God's the one that gives us the abilities. Now we can take some real good lessons from Nehemiah right here. Let's just breeze through it. It's a, it's a great, great book. We'll read the, the first a lot of the first chapter here. The very first thing that Nehemiah did when Nehemiah witnessed the condition, when he heard the report, when he, when he heard the condition of his homeland, when he heard the condition of his people, when he heard the condition of the walls that were broken down, Nehemiah, the first thing that he did, the very first thing that he did, and it ought to be the first thing that we always do, is he went to the Lord. It says that Nehemiah, he wept, he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. Did you know that probably in the day in which we're living, in the challenges that we're facing, if we would do the things that Nehemiah did right here, it'd probably make a world of difference if we went before the Lord in weeping and mourning and fasting and praying before God. It might be that God would have mercy and hear our prayers. And God just might heal our land. He might. It says Nehemiah went before the Lord and he prayed before the Lord. He fasted, and then Nehemiah. The the next thing that Nehemiah did is it says that when Nehemiah was praying before God, when he when he saw the situation, when he was grieved by what he what he heard, the report that he heard, uh, what he what he saw in his in his uh, mind's eye, when he when he realized the situation, he prayed before God. And then the next thing that Nehemiah did is that he confessed his sins and the sins of his fathers. He said, Lord, I've sinned. My fathers have sinned. We don't deserve any more than what we've received. But Lord, would you forgive us and would you heal our land and would you have mercy upon us? You know, another thing that Nehemiah, I appreciate that Nehemiah did it would have been real easy for Nehemiah to have said, you know what, that's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. I'll let them take care of that. But God put it on Nehemiah to make a difference. It says that he prayed before the God of heaven and he, he, he claimed God's promises He says, I beseech thee, O God. He says, let now thine ear be attentive. And open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, night and day, for the children of Israel and thy servants. And Nehemiah was saying, "And I confess the sins, and I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house has sinned. In the day in which we're living, sin is so rampant; it's so much of an everyday life that we fail to actually." Feel the conviction of sin that we should feel. God's word brings light in our life to the sin. Nehemiah says, I've sinned. The children of Israel have sinned. My father's house have sinned. He says, we've dealt very corruptly against thee. We've not kept thy statutes nor thy judgments with which thou commandest thy servant Moses. I ask you, do you think we've kept all the commandments, all the statutes, all the judgments that God has given us to keep? We ought to go before the Lord and just say, Lord, forgive us. Would you have mercy upon us? Would you heal our land? Would you heal our churches? Would you heal our government? Would you heal our families? Would you heal our children? Would you heal our land? Nehemiah said, remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses saying, he says, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Wonder why we've been scattered abroad among the nations. Right here, it says, as Nehemiah is claiming, he says, if we've transgressed. He says, if ye transgress, I'll scatter you abroad among the nations. Wonder if that has anything to do with the state of the nation, the state of the family, the state of the churches. It did back then. Now look what he says. But if you turn to me, you know, one thing that's absolutely wonderful about the Lord Is that he is an always, all time, a forgiving Lord. There is a solution for every problem that we have. And we can be encouraged and be hopeful because we have a forgiving Lord. He said, but if he turned to me. He says, if you turn to me and if you keep my commandments. Now, this is something interesting right here. He said, if you turn to me, turn away from the world, the enticements of the world, turn to the Lord. He says, if you turn to me and you keep my commandments, it's one thing to turn to the Lord, it's another thing to know his commandments. But he says right here, if you keep my commandments, what he's saying right here is if you know to do something, you're to keep it. But also, he says, if you turn to me, if you keep my commandments. And then he says, and if you do my commandments, if you know to do it, God calls you to simply do it. Not to be just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. He says, though there were were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet I will gather them from thence and I will bring them unto this place that I have chosen to set my name there. I I like how he describes that right there. God is in the business of gathering folks together. He is. God's in the business of, of gathering us up. God's not in the business of scattering us. If we scatter, it's usually our own doing that does that. But God's in the business of bringing us together. And he says, I also bring you together. And he said, I've set you in a place that I've chosen for my name to be given. I believe that that can be descriptive of the Lord's house. His house is a place that his name is is to be praised, is to be announced, is to be encouraged. And he says, I can bring you together a time of rejoicing. He says, I can. Nehemiah is praying and he says, Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Nehemiah says, in the midst of all these challenges, in the midst of all these discouragements, in the midst of all the, this situation, Nehemiah says, I'm claiming the promise that you got a people. And these people are your people. And these people are ones that you've chosen. And you've set your name there. He says, now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy power and thy strong hand. And in the midst of all of our discouraging situations around us or in our own lives, we can be encouraged by the same encouragement that Nehemiah had right here, that that we are his people. We are his servants who have been redeemed by his great power, who are kept by his strong hand in the midst of all the stuff that's going on around us. We are his and we're kept by him and we are encouraged by his power. And by his strong hand. And then Nehemiah sums his prayer up this way. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And then he says something else right here that's real interesting. I don't think this is arrogant. I don't think this is overly bold. I think it should be an example to all of us that as Nehemiah prays the prayer and he confesses his sins and the sins of the people, as he claims the promises of God, as he acknowledges that that God has a people and they're his people and that he strengthens his people. He says, Lord, I desire to be used of you. And then he says, and Lord, would you prosper the journey? I want to tell you, if you go about doing something on your own and you don't look to the Lord and lean to the Lord, you can go and just spin your wheels all day long. You may be able to work 18 hours a day, But it takes the Lord blessing and prospering or you're just going to be spinning wheels or you may make a whole lot of money. But unless the Lord blesses that, it'll be like the description that we're taught in the book of Proverbs, that you may be putting money in the top of the bag. But it seems like that there's more holes in the bottom of the bag and it goes out faster than it goes in the top of the bag. Elder Compton used to say, he said, I thought I had to work seven days a week. And he said, and then when the Lord dealt with me and he convicted my heart, he said, I realized that when I cut it back to six days a week, what I made six days a week went a whole lot further than working seven days a week. Because he said the Lord sealed up some of those holes that are in the bottom of the bag. If you're not doing it serving the Lord and what the Lord would have you to do, it'll come out the bottom faster than it goes in the top. And I don't care how much you think you can put in the top. It'll go out faster and you're going to end up with an empty bag. Nehemiah prayed to God and he said, Lord, I have a desire that you'll use me. I want you to use me to make a difference. I want to be used of you. And Lord, I don't want to just be spinning my wheels. But Lord, I want you to prosper my work. He was looking to the Lord in every aspect of it. I'm going to just share with you some of the. Assessments that I made through the book of Nehemiah. It's 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 really really good. The second chapter is so good. I'd encourage you to go and read it. We preached on it before. Every time I read it, every time I preach on it, I get greatly encouraged. In the second chapter, Nehemiah had an audience before the king, and 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 and, and the king saw his countenance, and he said to him, "Why are you of such a sad countenance? Are you sick? What's the problem?" And, and Nehemiah was. Was, uh, was, uh, was taken back that, that the king recognized his sad countenance. And, and he was almost fearful because one of the things that you just didn't do was to be, have a bad countenance in front of the king. The king wanted jetbeat beat all the time, I assume. And, and probably the king thought, well, there could be some conspiracy going on if, I, if my cupbearer is of a sad countenance. And he recognized Nehemiah's countenance. And Nehemiah said to him, he said, why shouldn't I be sad? I've heard of the situation of my people back home. I've heard that the, the gates are br- burned down. I've heard that the walls are broken down, that the city is in disarray and that the people, uh, that the city's in rubbish and the people are, are tortured and tormented. He says, why shouldn't I be of a sad countenance? And then the king said to Nehemiah, what is it that you would ask of me? I'm paraphrasing this. You can go through and read it yourself. And Nehemiah was a wise individual. Because it looked like right there that the heart of the king was turned toward Nehemiah. And he said, what is it that you would ask of me? And it looked like that right there, there was almost a blank check that the king was going to offer to Nehemiah. But before Nehemiah responded to the king, you know what he did? That's right. He did something he had already been doing. It says, before he answered the king, he prayed. You ever prayed any of those real quick prayers? I mean, you're in a fix and a jam, and, and you pray it right real quick. Well, this was a quick prayer, because this was in right in the middle of the conversation with the king. But before he answered the king... Brother Mark, you remember Brother Kenny and I and, and uh, Sister Chrissy going up to, to New Jersey. And Brother Mark oftentimes thinks about the answer before it, he, he shares it. And Brother Kenny... Brother, brother David, your 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 cousin, brother Kenny, is so excited and enthusiastic, and and. Um He would he'd ask Brother Mark a question and and we're riding along in the van and Brother Mark and Brother Kenny and Sister Chrissy are all there. And and Brother Kenny would get so excited about what he was talking to Brother Mark about. He'd he'd ask Brother Mark a question and he wanted him to answer it right then. Brother Mark would think about it and take his time. And then all of a sudden, Brother Kenny would answer his own question because he just got so excited about it. But Nehemiah took his time. And he talked to the Lord before he answered the king. And he did it with wisdom and he did it with boldness. And when the king asked him, how can I help? Nehemiah said, well, since you've asked and Nehemiah recognized that God was working on the heart of the king. At the same time, he was working on the heart of Nehemiah and he Nehemiah said, well... Here's some things that will help me greatly in my journey. First of all, I'd like to take off and I'd like to go myself and and I'd like to do an assessment and I'd like to see if I can be used of God to make a difference in my homeland with my people. Could I have the time off to go? Secondly, would you give me letters with the king's signature that I can pass through other regions? And I have basically an open passport to go where I need to go. And then Nehemiah, and I thought this was pretty bold, but, Nehemiah, but but he had to be looking to the Lord and leaning on the Lord. And Nehemiah said, since, I'm, since you're writing letters, would you write one more that would give me the authority to chop down some of the timbers out of the king's forest that I could have this to take along and show as well? That it goes on down and it tells us that God used Nehemiah in a mighty way to encourage the Lord's people. They were greatly discouraged. They were greatly distraught. In chapter 2 that we are getting up to, it says that, that Nehemiah, first of all, he did the assessment. You can go through and read. He, he, it says he went out by night. And it says two different times that he... It says, I told not anybody what God had put on my heart to do. I told not anybody what I saw. I thought about that. I wondered why that he did it. I wonder why he didn't take a bunch with him. Why he didn't, didn't, didn't tell everybody what he was thinking or what he saw. I expect one of the reasons he did is because there's probably some folks that have said, well, Nehemiah, that's too great a work. You can't do it. There have been a whole lot of folks that had told Nehemiah all the reasons that he couldn't do it. Rather than Nehemiah leaning on the Lord and the Lord put it on his heart. But after Nehemiah had gone out and made a full assessment of the situation. After Nehemiah had talked to the Lord over and over. After Nehemiah had been given by God a solution to be used and God put it upon his heart. Nehemiah says to the people, he calls them together and he says, this is what God's put on my heart to do. God has put this upon my heart. But he says, I need your help to do it. And he says that the people, Nehemiah told the people. He says, please read all 13 chapters, but especially chapters 1 and 2. Really, really good. And, and by the way, starting in chapter 2 on down, there was some opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, they began to mock him when they began to do the work they would say well, uh, the work that you're doing is is, is so frail and, and 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 so feeble that even as you rebuild the wall even if a fox comes up and hits it it'll knock it over and they begin to go and spread all these lies and these rumors and then another time they wanted him to come off the wall where they were working at just to talk to him and nehemiah says what i'm doing is a good work of the lord i really don't have time to do that i mean that's Way I'm interpreting what Nehemiah said right here. But when Nehemiah tells the people, he says, You see the distress that we're in, how that Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Nehemiah entreats the people, he says, Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. That we be no more a reproach. Nehemiah lays the situation out. Nehemiah says, God is the one that put this on my heart. God is the one that's going to bless this work to be done. But he tells the people and then the people respond. He says that I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. And also of the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And when they heard the people said, let us rise up and build and let us have our hands strengthened for this good work. I tell you, we're all here, I believe, for a purpose and a reason. And I believe it's to serve in God's kingdom. And I believe it's to build up God's kingdom. It takes the Lord. It takes the power of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. We've got a lot of things that are opposing it. Satan himself. But it's a good work. And there's just not much else you can do. That you can be assured that it's going to honor the Lord. Like building up his kingdom. Let us rise up and build and let our hands be strengthened for this good work. May God bless you.